Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. On this week's podcast, I'm joined by Dame Professor Helen Stokes Lampard. Dame Helen is the immediate past chair of the Royal College of GPs and is currently chair of the Academy for Social Prescribing. In our conversation, we talk about what the National Academy for Social Prescribing is aiming to do, the evidence to support the use of social prescribing, and whether Dame Helen feels optimistic about the future of general practice. Before we start, just a quick message. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do think about rating us. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. I'm really delighted to be joined today by Professor Dame Helen Stokes-Lampard. Dame Helen is a GP partner in Lichfield in Staffordshire, Chair of the National Academy for Social Prescribing, and also Chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, which represents all the Royal Colleges and faculties. She's currently on secondment to the AOMRC from her role as Professor of GP of Education at the University of Birmingham. Many of our listeners will know Dame Helen best from her previous role as Chair of the Royal College of GPs, a post she held from 2016 to 2019. Thanks so much for joining us, Helen. It's great to be here, Emma. Thank you. Just before we start talking about social prescribing and some of the work you're doing around that, I was wondering if we could go back to like kind of earlier days in your career and um, if you could tell us what it was that made you decide to become a doctor and in particular a GP. So I come from a fairly normal background, grew up in South Wales. Uh, both my parents were teachers, no doctors or healthcare professionals in the family, but I was reasonably bright in school. And, and I went to a sixth form college and suddenly everyone was saying, so you are going to study medicine, aren't you? And there was this strange expectation of others. And I haven't really given it a lot of thought. The experiences that I've had in medicine had been related to family, friends and our own family GP. And so I went off to medical school um, fairly determined that if I was going to be a doctor, I was going to be a gynecological oncologist. So women's cancer was going to be where I focused when I qualified uh, for complex reasons. So I trained in London, but ended up back in South Wales doing obs and gynae training. Loved it. But then quite a few life events got in the way. Life threw me a few curveballs, and not least being in the 1990s, there was a huge training problem in obs and gynae. And all trainees were told that there was going to be no career progression for five years and to rethink our options. Um, And at the same sort of time, my husband was seriously ill. I was already married by then. And it kind of made me rethink what I was going to do. And so I remember going to speak to my consultant at the time, who was an amazing woman, and saying that I was rethinking what I was going to do and and said that I was thinking of public health medicine, because if I wasn't going to save them one by one, I was going to save the whole flipping lot of them. (laughs) And I ended up starting on an academic GP training program with the idea that it would be an excellent grounding in public health medicine. Um, I started and I within a few weeks, I realized I'd found my happy place and all the bits that the rest of my career up to that point hadn't uh, that hadn't, hadn't reached suddenly that that the whole experience of knowing people's families and their relationships, being embedded in the community, the longitudinal approach to care and the totality of the care we were able to provide people. So that whole spectrum of not just the physical and the psychological, but also those real social elements to people's lives as well. Is it a career that you still recommend to doctors who are starting out? Absolutely, I do. Clearly, general practice isn't for everyone. But if you are incredibly curious, if you're genuinely interested in people, um, not just their diseases or their body parts, Uh, then general practice is phenomenally enriching. I mean, the team nature of the work that we do, being embedded in communities and being able to make a real difference, not just to the individual, but their extended families and their communities is is wonderful. Um, I love the fact that I'm a partner um, and have been able to influence the shape of the practice. I mean, 
the one constant in medicine is change. So whichever part of branch of practice you'll go into, change will be there. And of course, as a GP and as a partner, you have a lot more influence on the hands-on ability to change your working environment on a day-to-day basis. And also, I mean, I think it's that incredible sophistication that you need to be able to do general practice well, being able to handle risk, being able to weigh up what the guidance and the pathway say versus what the individual says, that tailoring of care to the individual. So, yeah, it's an amazing place to be. And of course, it's offered me all sorts of opportunities, which I encourage others to do as well. What it doesn't do is shut you down because it opens up possibilities for you. Social prescribing is one of those things that's been around. Well, it's kind of been around for forever, but the term social prescribing is something that's that's a bit more recent. And it can mean sort of a different, few different things to different people. I was wondering, how do you personally define what social prescribing is? Social prescribing is the ability to work out what pe- what will give people a more enriching life and to help them live their best life. And then helping them make the connections to do so. So the social prescription is the, is the connecting bit of it. So social prescribing link workers, which have become incredibly popular throughout the NHS, historically, what we call social prescribing was often done by GPs themselves. So GPs would work out that there was something missing in somebody's life and that actually they were lonely, so a befriending service would be great for them and they would give them the phone number or they would help make the connection, phone somebody up and say, I'm worried about this patient. And do the Actually, what link workers do is they, they spend the time with the individual, really get into the bottom of what's going on and to try and work out the best thing for them. They usually have a huge range of resources and contacts at their disposal and they literally make the connections. And sometimes that will mean going along with the individual to a leisure centre and showing them that this particular group or society is not alien and strange, but a lovely and warm welcoming, or they will help them get hold of a pair of trainers so they can start exercising, or they will um, you know, sit with them while they log on to do something different online. So it's it's quite so, so true social prescribing, true link work is, is quite a detailed, personalised thing. What we've historically done as GPs, but also what hairdressers, bartenders, priests, you know, all sorts of religious leaders have always done is identify the need and try and help people fulfil those bits of their lives where other services can't reach. And so obviously, as doctors and GPs, you know, we're acutely aware of what the NHS can and cannot and should not be doing. And this is where social prescribing comes in at that interface where the social bits, sometimes the spiritual parts of people's lives as well. Um, and people are, will be, when people are more fulfilled and happy when these connections are made, it then has a direct impact back on their health and well-being. Because, you know, we know that if somebody is in pain or distress or anxious or lonely, then they will feel other physical ailments far more severely or indeed their mental health problems will be more acute. The National Academy for Social Prescribing, which you're the chair of, that's that's only been around for the last couple of years, really. Could you explain a bit about what the Academy is and what it is you're trying to do there? So the Secretary of State, Matt Hancock, back in 2019, came up with this idea that as the NHS had committed to investing in social prescribing link workers, that there should be some sort of overseeing body, a body that helped define what social prescribing is, that helped uh, check out what the evidence base was and that what, what uh, gaps there were in the evidence, but also that would bring a bit of structure to a pretty nebulous concept at that point. So Department of Health in England put forward uh, some money to help get us started. And so I was asked to chair the group. We have a chief exec and gradually it's built from there. Now, uh, as we're speaking in early 2022, um, 
The National Academy for Social Prescribing is a fully registered charity with over 30 staff. Um, and we have a series of programs where one of the biggest one is probably our Thriving Communities program, where we help uh, initiatives in the community that have been shown to work to be duplicated and rolled out elsewhere. So it's about uh, you know sharing best practice. We've got um, learning networks. We've got a fantastic research collaboration that are just releasing evidence summaries about social prescribing. So these are these are complex academic partnerships have got together to synthesize the evidence and generate summaries. And this is a big step forward for us. But also we have helped set up an international social prescribing movement in collaboration with the World Health Organization and the United Nations. You obviously have a background as, as an academic GP. So research and evidence is obviously really, really, really important to you. Are we starting to get kind of an evidence base together for social prescribing? And what's the evidence sort of telling us about what works and what doesn't work? One of the challenges when I first got interested in social prescribing is that some of my more academic uh, colleagues were a bit cynical about this thing called social prescribing because it wasn't well defined. And but everyone could see that it was a highly complex social intervention with multiple touch points and therefore not amenable to classic research paradigms. You can't do a randomized controlled trial of social prescribing uh, because there are far too many variables that you just can't control. So, you know, so, you know if, if there are, you know, 40 or 50 different variables, then you, you know, that's thousands and thousands of options and pathways. So what you need is to take a social care research methodology to appraise it and actually there hasn't been a huge amount of that done there have been certain pieces done which have been very good but often small studies done the evidence that we're now pulling together the the easy benefits to see are that it makes people feel better that people you know so, so individuals feel a lot better for doing this and there is a lot of uh, evidence that gps and healthcare professionals see that they're, they're able to focus their time more on the medical and psychological issues of their patients' lives rather than trying to sort out all the social stuff. So if you're not having to worry about the patient's boiler and the patient's debt, you can actually focus on, is there anything more we can do to help their depression and their chronic pain? So it allows people to use their time better. What we hope to see are some bigger, well-designed studies in the future that will build on the evidence and the evidence gaps that we've got at the moment. The evidence is building, um, and certainly that it is looking um, in the work we're releasing that there are millions of GP appointments that are being saved as a consequence of the expansion of social prescribing. But I feel that it's not a strong enough evidence base yet. We need to go a lot further because at the end of the day, if we're spending, you know, the public's money through the NHS on uh, link workers, we do need to be sure that that is the right thing. But a lot of these things are measured in longer term that, than the normal short-termism of clinical trials uh, and indeed of NHS budgetary loops, which tend to be one-year or three-year cycles. Social prescribing obviously fits into this whole agenda of, of tackling health inequalities and population health, doesn't it? And obviously NHS England has really set, you know, it wants to look at those things as part of the long-term plan. What role do you think social prescribing can play in tackling health inequalities? And, and you know, how important is it that that's seen as part of that whole agenda? Health inequalities, you know, the, the fundamental fabric of the way our systems are set up, are that health inequalities are baked into our society. You know, the way we, you know, it, it is easier for educated middle class people to access health and care than it is for people who are disadvantaged, who are impoverished, who are digitally illiterate and so on. So 
where social prescribing comes in. So, so, so social prescribing within the NHS and output of the NHS, I think, are worth separating because in the NHS, once people have got through the doors or have navigated sufficient to get to us, we have a responsibility to do what we can for them. And so where we recognise that the social elements of people are impacting very adversely on somebody's health and mental well-being, then we have a responsibility, we've identified it, and then if we can link them to resources, we can then concentrate back on the bits the NHS should be doing. So if it's come to us, we have a responsibility to do something. We don't have to fix it, but at least if we have identified it, we can help move that direction. I worry a lot about the people who need the social prescription element who don't get to us, the ones who really find it hard to navigate the system. So whether that is people from, you know, communities that don't interact traditionally well with the NHS or whether that's uh, the homeless, whether it's asylum seekers, you know, people are trying to keep off the radar of government organisations, whether it's traveller communities. Um, and there are outreach groups who do social prescription link working just as well as NHS link workers do. And I think we shouldn't think about it just as being an NHS phenomenon. It's much wider than that. And of course, an integrated care system will try in a good, mature integrated care system. You would hope these would be all joined up so that link workers who, work, who are based in the NHS will understand and have the resources available and vice versa with those who are not. So local governments have invested in this sort of thing for a very long time. There's a lot of challenges to getting social prescribing kind of embedded in the NHS and getting things working. And I'm sure you saw this, the, the report by the King's Fund on the additional roles reimbursement scheme. And it was it was fairly damning about how well the ARRS is, is being implemented. I don't think anybody doubts that these extra people, including social prescribers, are, are, are what what's needed to, to help primary care. But the way it's kind of being implemented is it's, it's sort of problematic. I mean, the report said there was an extremely poor understanding of the role of link workers within PCNs. It said staff were left to their own devices to design their roles, often felt very isolated. They were being asked to work with patients with significant complex needs that they were often not trained to deal with, which is something, you know, I've come across in the past. And we've reported in the past about people leaving these kind of link worker roles because they felt quite poorly supported. And I think a lot of that stems from people not really understanding what social prescribing is and, and what link workers should be doing. What what do you think needs to be done to address some of these challenges and about the ARRS and, and how could it work better for social prescribers? If we just take a step back, any time a new role is introduced to the health service or indeed anywhere, um, there is a huge learning curve for everyone. And what we've had with the ARRS scheme is a whole raft of additional roles being introduced to many practices almost simultaneously. So and without and at a time where there was absolutely no headspace or slack in the system for GPs to be taking the time out to learn and understand. So we, through resource of people, without the surrounding package of time to invest in those people. So, you know, in a sense, looking back, that's fairly straightforward to see that. Um, I saw it in my practice. Um, because people arrive and it's kind of, well, who's going to look after this? Who's going to train? Well, nobody's got time to do that. Well, surely they're having support centrally. Surely they've got mentorship and leadership. Somebody must be telling them what to do. And it, and of course, a lot of this has happened during the pandemic as well, which has just amplified all those complications. So there is a bit of well-intentioned enthusiasm has led to some awkward things where you suddenly have that moment of, oh my gosh. So you mean nobody has shown you how it works? Nobody has tried to welcome you into the team and 
and because the primary care networks themselves were in their infancy at the little stage where they were just forming as organizations, they didn't have the bandwidth to take on a lot of the mentorship and support that would be ideal. So it, therefore, it's incumbent on us all to welcome them into the tribes we've already got. And again, that sometimes just has to be stated quite overtly. Actually, this person is here. If you want them to be valuable, you need to understand them. They need to understand you and they need to have people to report to. So a lot of learning, a lot of stuff to be done better. I mean, the NHS England has really tried in terms of providing uh, networks and training for link workers. At the end of the day, they funded these posts and they want them to succeed. Um, but a lot of people with link workers have come through an intermediary like a local charity, and sometimes those links have broken down. So lots of lessons to be learned and implemented, but I think people are trying to do so quite quickly. And as the next raft of link workers are coming into general practice, my understanding is there's a lot more support going in to help them, and that the trailblazers and the first generation lessons will have been learned from that. Uh, I do hope so, because where it works, it's fantastic. Uh, and so exciting to see it in practice. No, I was going to ask you about that because from your own point of view, I mean, you must, in your role, you must be sort of be out and about or, or hearing about and seeing some of these initiatives in action. What's your impression about what actually works and what's needed to make social prescribing a success at a local level? So I think there's two levels of social prescription. I mean, there's the the, if you like the purebred social prescription, which is the somebody spending a lot of time really getting to understand what somebody needs and adopting them and taking them along, quite literally sometimes holding their hand to help them do stuff, um, which is very intensive, resource intensive and difficult. And to general practitioners who work on 10 or 12 minute appointments, who are churning through huge numbers of cases, seeing somebody in their team spending an hour with an individual or a couple of hours with an individual over several weeks is a bit of an anathema. It's not the way we tend to work, which is about high throughput um, stuff. But then there's the second level, which is what I call the advice and guidance and signposting level, where there's a huge throughput can help happen when you actually all people need is to know this is the money advice and pension service link. You know, this is how you get help with getting a new boiler in your area. This is this charity will do everything to help you with this particular challenge. Um, and so if you think of it in those two tiers of social prescription, link workers should be spending more of their energy on the first group. But actually, there's a huge amount of benefit and throughput that can be gained from that wider level. Um, so. So in my own experience, I've seen both of those things in action. I, I've, I have said some of them, when you're saying about uh, link workers feeling overwhelmed by the huge complexity of patients, the first patients I think of to send my link workers are the hugely complicated ones. Not, but not because I want them to touch the medical side of it. That's my job to sort the medical stuff out because I want them to help with the social bits. And the problem is that patients often go into those encounters thinking like a patient, not thinking like a citizen and needing help with their social bits of their lives. And so they'll unburden the link worker with perhaps their seven or eight medical problems. When actually, if you're taking a step back and getting under the skin of it, you know, they're in rubbish housing, they're not supported, they're fearful because their neighbour is aggressive and, and, and occasionally beats the wife and, and they hear this and they don't know what to do with it or how to process that. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because if it is the more complex patients that are, are going to benefit a lot from social prescribing link workers, then it really does need to be sort of a partnership between the GP and the social prescriber as well. Does, um, so I was one of the things I did want to ask you is how important are GPs and the rest of the practice team in, in making social prescribing a success? If we just see the social prescribing link workers as a, we click these boxes and then it 
the referral disappears into the ether, the link worker does all the rest. It's going to lead to misunderstanding and a lot and a frustration, I think, on, on both sides. Because if you don't understand how one another work and what you're bringing to the you know, to the patient, that people will value one another. So if we work together, communicate with each other, we understand each other better. Once we stand understand each other better, we value each other better, and in turn, we make the right connections and communication between us. Because I don't really care the number of clicks that the link worker has done and the number of this scale or that scale they measure their total measure i actually care that they're helping my patients and that if my patients are feeling happier and healthier they're probably going to be less demanding on service are they going to all the requests of me as a gp will be more appropriately focused I, I get the impression that you've really been interested in social prescribing for quite a long time. I, mean, I remember being at the the RCGP conference when you were chair, and uh, you, I mean, like two years um, on the row in your speech, you did talk a lot about loneliness, and you used that case study example of one of your patients, um, and I, it did really stick in my mind because you obviously gave her a name, Enid. I seem to remember she was called. And... Yeah, that's right. Enid shaped care. We called the speech Enid shaped care in retrospect. Yeah, and that speech was in 2017. It was October 2017. I was looking to land pol- political points about general practice being deprofessionalized, about in the, we were moving to an era of tick box formulaic medicine, which completely undermined the richness and the complexity of what we do as GPs. And so I was looking for an example, a, a clinical example to put in my speech to help talk about actually stepping away from guidelines. So the key bit of the speech, I thought, was the, you know, if I had followed the guidelines, I would have been referring Enid for a hip replacement and putting her on antidepressants. But actually what stood out as the speech evolved and as I wrote it and as other people listened to it was actually the power was in understanding um, that this person didn't have a purpose in life. And by connecting her with somebody else who gave her a purpose in life she got her energy back when she got her energy back and her self-worth back she was more active so she didn't need a hip replacement because she worked away she effectively did her own physio and her natural endorphins kicked in and she didn't need antidepressants because her mood gradually lifted and so in a sense it helped me put form to something I had felt for a long time so yeah truly holistic care being embedded, understanding the, long, the, the, the longitudinal pathway with patients and where they fit in the community and that big picture thinking had always been in, in the lexicon for me. But what I didn't have was a framework or a narrative around it. And it was somebody said to me, so you're talking about social prescribing. I said, well, yes, I guess this is social prescribing. And then I got, so it was actually as a result of writing a speech that the phrase social prescribing really came into my language. I ended up visiting uh, Susanna Everington out in East London Tower Hamlet and seeing what they were doing out there. Very powerful. I mean, at the same sort of time, I was going out and seeing work in the vanguards. Um, and I went down to uh, Somerset to see some of the work that was going on there. And it, I guess, and I was asked, people started to ask me to talk about this. I was like, I know nothing about this subject. And they were kind of, well, clearly you do know something about this subject. And I, I became an expert by experience, not through study. And um, and I became, if you like, a flag bearer for a movement by accident. It never intended to be. It, w- it was never what I set out to do in my time as chair of the Royal College of GPs. Just quickly, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about what you're doing at the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges as well. I mean, can you explain a little bit about what your role involves there and in particular what the AOMRC is doing around how the NHS needs to change as we come out of the pandemic? Gosh, that's a big question. Thank you, Emma. <clears throat> so... <laughs> 
the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges is probably the biggest and most important organisation that most doctors have never heard of. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> okay, and that is absolutely fine. So we're the umbrella body for the 24 medical colleges, royal colleges and faculties that award CCT. So effectively, the, the body that gave you your CCT, Completion of Training Certificate, um, will be part of the Academy. Um, and what we do is try and bring them together to achieve consensus. Uh, so there's a huge amount of energy goes into education and standards and supporting doctors through their professional journey. So whether that's about curricula, assessments and so on. But then there's the whole large piece about the medical political landscape. And so things that unite us all. So things that all doctors feel strongly about. So sometimes that's guidance on things. So, you know, at the moment we're, we're, we've just signed off guidance about eating disorders, which is work that's been led by the Royal College of Psychiatrists. But of course, eating disorders impacts on most specialities in medicine in some way, shape or form. So whether it's the imaging of people, whether it's the acute presentations to A&E or to general practice or acute medicine, uh, there are lots of, of areas where this, this will touch. So we can sign off guidance like that. But then there are the political issues. And obviously during the pandemic, those who've been legion uh, and whether it's about um, uh, PPE, whether it's been about vaccination, mandatory vaccination, it's getting a voice together, consensus building. And a, but the greatest part of the work we do is behind the scenes, working with government, with regulators and bodies. And I measure my successes in crises that we managed to avert by making connections, preempting problems, getting organisations to talk to each other behind the scenes to not go headlong and, and make mistakes. So it's a very different role from being chair of the Royal College of GPs. So when I was chair of the Royal College of GPs, you know, I knew that I had 52,000 GP members who, each of whom had a voice and opinion and everything. At the moment, the organisation, I've just got 24 members in reality. It's the organisations themselves. It's not the 220,000 doctors that they in turn represent. Um, and I mean, it's been a steep learning curve for me, of course. I've learned so much more about what my secondary care colleagues do. And it's fairly, well, it is very unusual for a GP to lead this organisation. But it feels like a really, really important time for medicine to be speaking with one voice. And it makes it a whole lot easier for bodies like the Department of Health or the GMC to come to the academy and say, look, we've got a question we'd like a, a collective response on, or we've got an issue. Um if they're not going to go to 24 organisations, all they'll do is if, if, if the alternative is individual organisations or the academy is they'll just pick on the big usual suspects. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was going to ask you about, because this is an issue that cuts across all specialties of medicine, is... Um, the workforce crisis. I mean, obviously, that is one of the biggest issues, biggest challenges facing the NHS. I mean, it's not just obviously medicine, it's all areas of the workforce. What would you like to see happen? What do you think needs to happen to kind of address this? And in particular, I think that you know one of the biggest issues is retention of people, particularly given they're coming off the back of two years of a really very, very challenging time. We've been doing a lot on this already. So one of the big focuses for us recently has been uh, pushing the, uh, the new health and care bill um, to get a big amendment put to it to mandate the Department of Health and Social Care to come up with a regular, independent, transparent, robust workforce plan. We have never had a big workforce plan for the NHS um, in England, and that is a travesty. Uh, it is difficult, it will be difficult to do, but it is important to do it. And one of the big reasons why it's not done is that people, particularly Treasury, seem fearful that there will be a set of demands that they then can't resource. 
But as I regularly point out to people, you do town planning, even though you know full well you can't afford the bypass, but at least you plan so you can see where you're heading for. You know, you've got your North Star to aim towards. Um, so just because we can't, we fear we can't fund it is not a good enough reason for not doing something. Without a plan, we will keep running into workforce crises. At the start of this podcast, we mentioned that I ended up becoming a GP partly because of a workforce crisis in obstetrics and gynecology in the 1990s. Now, it worked out fine for me at the end and for many of my colleagues. But, you know, there are some careers that were completely destroyed over that. Um, and we, we keep repeating mistakes. So what can we do about it? So a good plan would be a good thing. So lobbying hard for that. And it's just got through um, the House of Lords who've been very supportive of the workforce amendment, although what will actually happen next remains to be seen. Working with government uh, is very important to understand that there is not going to be any more money for the NHS in the short term. Um, The country is financially in in a precarious position. We have had a lot of money for the NHS. So how on earth do we do workforce better with the resource that we've got? So where are the efficiencies? Where can technology and pathways and different ways of working help us? Where do we have to invest to have more healthcare professionals of different varieties and flavors? So you've talked about the R's roles in general practice and the alternative roles there. And of course, it's far less expensive to have a series of other healthcare professionals than it is to have more GPs. However, we also need to look at the research which shows that generally, um, if you can get GPs, they do a heck of a lot more. Uh, you get more bang for your buck in the longer term. Uh, but of course, it takes a long time to get there. So it's how far ahead you're prepared to plan. So some honest, robust conversations about the way we work. Um, and then if we're stuck with the financial pot we've got, how do we move resource from other parts? So whether that's um, where we're going to take the money from to have more staff. Is it from the buildings and the fabric? Is it from the treatments? Is it from other, you know, is it from the drugs budget? Where do we get the money from to have more healthcare professionals? And these are massively political questions um, and hard to work through. But if we don't have an honest conversation uh, with the public, uh, as well as the politicians about it, then we're not going to move forward. So a serious rethink about the way care is delivered is right. One of the things, obviously, that's been in the press over the last week or so, there's been a lot of talk about this idea of um, nationalising general practice and whether all GPs should be employed by hospitals. And apparently this is something that the health secretary, the current health secretary, seems to be quite keen on. What's your view on that? Do you think the partnership model and independent contractor status is the best option for general practice going forwards? So look, I speak as an individual and not for any organisation where I talk about general practice, just for the avoidance of that time. I know certainly don't speak for generality GP nowadays. But in terms of my personal view, look, I've been a GP partner for almost 20 years. I'm just a few months short of 20 years as a partner. Um, and it's been very enriching, fulfilling and creative and allowed for a great deal of flexibility. And it really works in my area. We have no shortage of people wanting to be partners. Um, we are, we're very lucky in that regard. However, there are parts of the country where the partnership model is long gone, where people have handed back their contracts, where working in models, either where um, they're in large systems, which secondary care systems have have taken over, or where they've got into massive partnership groupings. um, And and it's quite a different looking model of general practice. Um, And, you know, you have a sort of very small number of partners with a massive proportion of salary doctors. So the answer to your question, Emma, is that I believe that there are many models of general practice that can work and do work. And what we shouldn't do is try and impose one size to fit all. So to narrow it down to a simplistic, it should all be X or Y 
just won't work. History does teach us that that won't work. And um, if you do, if, for example, in an area like mine where the partnership model works very well, allows for creativity and innovation and is attractive to people, uh, and you push us all over to a salary model, it's really easy. I'll do a far shorter days at work. The patients I see and care for will get all my care, attention and professionalism as they always did. But I tell you what, I won't be doing flipping 14 hour days because they won't be prepared to pay me three programmed activities for doing what I do. So if they try, so the cons- and there's one of the silly anomalies that's worth people being aware of. When we try and compare hospital consultant contracts and GPs, in GPs, we talk about sessions, which are half days, basically. And a half day is, is usually about six, seven plus hours. A programmed activity in hospital is about a four hour block. So my two session day in general practice is a full three PA contract. Um, And I have to point this out very regularly to people who try and make these comparisons. Um, When you do time and motion studies on general practitioners and what you do, you get a lot of bang for your buck the way things work at the moment. You go to a salaried model, entirely salaried and contracted, and then it's people work to contracts. doesn't stop them being professional and doing a very good job, but you don't get the the extras out of them that you do at the moment because those things aren't incentivized or valued in the system, certainly not in the early days. And whilst it might be a very good way of shoring up services and providing services for community where you cut where nothing else will work, it is not a cheap way of doing things. The evidence is actually quite an expensive way of doing things um, in reality. So if, if you can make the partnership model work, it's very good value. Where it's gone, you have to think creatively and learn from others. I mean, just one last question as well. I mean, obviously, there's been a really difficult time for general practice. I'm sure you felt it when you've been in your practice as well. I mean, it's been very challenging for the last year in particular, I think. Um, Do you think, you know, the future for general practice is positive or do you think, you know, we've got more strife to come over the coming years? Medium to longer term future for general practice is bright and good because things were, were definitely starting to move. Just before the pandemic, I really felt the pendulum was starting to swing. You know, the challenges we'd had with recruitment were easing. The promises of the new contracts were coming through. Um, and even though people didn't necessarily feel it at the time, the, I, I could see the pendulum start to swing. I've been through a few of these cycles over the years of my time as a GP. The pandemic has been a hammer blow to the whole of the NHS and has put us back a long way. I think it's gonna stay rocky for a while yet. Uh, This pandemic is far from over. And the one thing we can be fairly certain of is there will be more variants. So uh, another bad variant, actually the global situation with the war in Ukraine and Russia uh, will have knock-on effects for us all. Uh, And certainly the economic benefit is, uh, the economic harm is inevitable. Um, I worry about even wider harm. So, I'm actually not very optimistic in the short term, Emma, but I am in the medium to longer term because the amazing resilience and professionalism of GPs and their teams never ceases to amaze. And the public need us. And when the public need us, they rally behind us. It's when the public get disgruntled or given unrealistic expectations that we get awful backlashes like we had last summer. And the terrible, the worst times I can ever felt as a general practitioner with feeling the public disliked us. Um, and as a very loved profession, that was a very dark place indeed to be. So um, I think our value is being demonstrated more clearly now. The narrative is better and that will help. But I think it'll be the external forces that hold us back uh, from getting to the happier place that we need to be. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Dame Helen for taking the time to talk to me. I'll be back next week with Nick and Luke when we'll be discussing the latest news affecting general practice. 
please do join us then. In the meantime, you can keep up with all the latest news in primary care, access clinical education and a whole range of articles on careers and other professional issues on our website at gponline.com.